This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles. This is the finish line. The Stanford Racing Team has made its way into the history books. But the most important thing for me is, uh, if it doesn't matter who comes first, it matters that we as a, as a community achieve it. Early in a technology, um, a, a thousand flowers should bloom. Welcome to Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. Today's episode is with Lucy Yu, Head of Innovation and New Mobility Services at the UK government's Center for Connected and Autonomous Vehicles. Lucy has a Master of Science in Chemistry from Imperial College London and has worked for numerous technology startups as well. Lucy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So you are the Head of Innovation and New Mobility Services at the UK's Centre for Connected and Autonomous Vehicles. Can you tell us a little bit about the centre, uh, when it was formed, and uh, what your purpose and, and mission is? Uh, yep. Yeah. So, so CCAV was, was, was formed in 2015. So, in fact, we just had our second birthday just, just last week. Mm-hmm. Um we are a joint policy unit of two uh, ministries of state in, in the UK government. Um, so one of those is the Department for Transport and the other one is our uh, is called BASE, our Department for Business, Enterprise and Industrial Strategy. Um, so and so we're, form- we're one team, we're formed of staff from, from both of those ministries. Um, and that's really handy because it, it, it gives us just a little bit more, more clout in what we do. It gives us access to two sets of ministers with slightly different portfolios. Um, so we have a a very broad remit in a way that um, not many parts of, of government are able to to achieve. Um, and, and, and we were put together um, really with a number of, of different objectives. Um, uh, I, I guess our kind of first strategic objective is is, a, is, is really to, to ensure that the UK has got a very vibrant um, and, and, and really world-leading connected and autonomous vehicle industry. So that's very much about attracting investment and building UK capability. Um, yeah. We think we have a world-class uh, kind of automotive industry in the UK um, and lots of kind of strength in, in academia, but there's also a lot of competition in this sector um, from, from places like the US and, and Germany and Japan and China. Um, so, so one of the key goals here is, is to secure uh, investments um, and to, to figure out areas where we can have some, some early uh, successes and, and capture some kind of UK industrial advantage there. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, a second strategic objective, um, which is, is, is really around ensuring that the UK remains one of the, the best places in the world to develop and use connected and autonomous vehicles. And, and really that's about um, safely kind of cl- clearing away any of the barriers that might exist in our regulatory framework, um, encouraging our transport operators to innovate and, and also uh, bringing the public with us. Um, so we have some key goals there around things like engaging the public, um, uh, figuring out the most effective uh, regulatory reform strategy, um, trying to drive progress on relevant international regulations, um, uh, uh, and uh, unlocking potential around things like vehicle connectivity, um, encouraging infrastructure operators to engage early, um, and looking at things like new business models such as mobility as a service. So so that's um, really quite a a broad objective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, and then a couple couple more things. Um, so uh, one of those is around um, ensuring uh, connection and autonomous vehicles in the UK are, are what we refer to as secure by design and they handle data appropriately. 
Um, so obviously as vehicles are becoming more, more connected and the level of automation increases, um, cyber threats increase um, and it, it's really important that consumers can, can trust that the CAD ecosystem is resilient to, to cyber attacks and also protects personal data. Um, so we're working a lot with the industry in that area as well to, to make sure that we take the appropriate steps to design cyber security um, into these vehicles and, and to have a, a framework for the handling of data. So um, we, we have quite a broad remit across uh, a range of areas, um, but um, that, that's the kind of the, the basic outline. Great. And uh, so starting, I guess, with uh, the formation of the centre, can you give us sort of a little timeline of uh, what policies uh, the UK has put in place that uh, govern autonomous vehicles? Um, yeah, so I mean, broadly speaking, uh, uh, at, at our inception or around the, around the point we were formed, we um, conducted a review of uh, a detailed review of all of the of the regulatory framework in the UK to understand whether there were any barriers to. Um, to, to testing uh, automated vehicle technology in the UK, um, and and, uh, and and that's available online. That, that, so you, uh, anyone can download that document. It's quite a long document, but essentially um, that confirms that um, anybody could conduct tests in the UK. Um, now they have to follow UK road traffic law. They have to have a, a roadworthy vehicle um, and, a, and a couple of other uh, factors as well. Um, but we have a very open regulatory framework. So, for instance, um, we don't require people to obtain a permit before they can uh, before they can conduct activities. Um, they're not limited to specific uh, uh, regions or areas, so they, they can uh, operate on any public roads. Um, we don't require them to, to put down a surety bond, for instance, so, that, so there's not a potential financial barrier to entry for, for smaller businesses. Um, so we have a very open climate Um we, at the same time, after after conducting that review, we published our code of practice for testing. So we published published that first version in, in July 2015, um, and I can talk uh, a little bit later about some of the updates we're currently making to that. Um, and that was intended really to um, kickstart some 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 testing um, and some early trialing. Uh, in the UK, in this area, um, it's it's advisory only, so it's it's uh, not not a kind of statutory document. Um, but in practice, the uh, a, a lot of organisations have found it really useful um, in setting up some of the very early trials that that we have in the UK. Um, so, yeah. are are the provisions uh, when you say it's not statutory? Um, w- would you say that compliance with the code? Uh, is all of it voluntary, or are there certain provisions which are, are mandatory, or are those just uh, reiterating existing uh, statutory law? Um, it's primarily it's a reiteration of existing uh, statutory law. Now we have found actually that organisations who are conducting uh, kind of uh, trialing and, and piloting in the UK. Um, they, now they generally do follow the code, um, uh, and it tends to be something that the their in, insurers are very keen to see that they're compliant with the code, and they've they read the code, and they're observing um, some of the points that are in the code. Um, uh, but the other thing I didn't say about it is we we always intended, even from even from the data publication, that it wouldn't be a static document that we would take feedback as, as we learnt and as organisations learnt from the from the trials and, and the pilots that, that they were conducting and that we would um, revise and update and amend the code um, based on that feedback 
Mm-hmm. And so, um, tell us uh, broadly speaking, uh, do you require uh, a a human to be in the car uh, while this testing, or is there a provision for testing a car with no one in it? Um, so. At, at, at the moment, uh, we, we so the current code does refer to uh, safety drivers and test drivers, and, and there is a requirement for somebody to be uh, effectively to be mon- monitoring the the road and, and able to ready, willing, and able to take back control if needed. Um, now that doesn't necessarily need to be a, a human in the vehicle. Um, if a testing organisation is is is, is able to. Um, present a good safety case if you like that could be a person outside the vehicle who's ready willing and able to take control um, so at the moment there is a requirement for a human driver um, be, be they inside the vehicle or outside the vehicle um, now we are looking at um, I mentioned we're looking at updates to the codes um, that is an area we are um, focused on at the moment um, there may be some exemptions uh, in, in the law that we can signpost that would enable organisations who feel that are in a position to potentially do um, some slightly more ambitious, um, complex testing to be able to proceed um, in the next couple of years. There's been a lot of discussion here about the question of using a remote operator and mm-hmm. um, and perhaps even having that be... Uh, a key component of helping the car when it gets stuck in certain situations, um, you know, having that remote operation. So it, it's an interesting area. I'm not sure from the technology perspective how exactly it works, but uh, it is interesting. You guys are thinking as well about how to facilitate that. Um, what about the traditional design of the car? Um are you requiring today that the car have a steering wheel or manual controls? Um, well, so there are most of the cars we're seeing uh, still have what we would describe as, as I suppose, conventional controls. Um, so things like a steering wheel. Um, now we have a set of uh, what are called construction and use regulations. Um, there are actually. Um, means for developers to, to, to use vehicles that don't meet those construction and use regulations. There is a, a process set out by which they can apply for an exemption from specific mm-hmm. uh, construction and use regulations. So that could include, for instance, vehicles that, that, um, you know, that, that, that don't have a steering wheel, for example. So um, we have seen applications um, for exemptions in, in, in other areas outside of the AV space, so they've just been slightly unusual vehicle designs. Um, so in many respects, this um, that sort of thing may just be a, a, almost like an incre- incremental progression of some of the stuff that the Department for Transport has, has previously uh, handled. It sounds a little bit similar to the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards uh, here in the U.S., where you yeah. sort of need an exemption in order mm-hmm. to not have the steering wheel. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, And the scope of the code of practice for testing is uh, what we would think of as levels three through five vehicles. Is that fair? Um, Yeah, so that is fair. The, 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 uh, I I guess our sort of, our our, our definition of an automated vehicle, certainly in in the the updates to the code, are really focused on on level four and above. Um, 
However, we um, we're also interested in level three, and, and we accept that there may be some vehicles uh, which uh, end up being tested in such a way that uh, they're being used at a lower level of automation than they've ultimately been designed to, to be used. So that that could be, for instance, a vehicle which um, is essentially level four capable, or certainly in some uh, specific operational design domains. Uh, but actually, it, it may in some circumstances be tested more like a level three vehicle. Um, so, but but those are certainly the, the the levels that we're interested in. And it also uh, covers uh, heavy duty commercial trucks as well. Uh, yeah, so it it, it 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 covers a wide range of vehicles. Um, now, uh, heavy duty trucks um, potentially have some additional. Uh, some additional requirements. Um, so we have a, a, a freight licensing regime in the UK. Um, so that they're very likely to, to to also need to comply with those licensing requirements. Um, and that's based on the it's based on the, the weight of the vehicle. Um, but yeah, in, in principle, it covers those as well. Do you have anyone testing uh, commercial trucking uh, in the UK? Um, not to my knowledge. Um, I'm just trying to think. Um, uh, no, not to my knowledge at the moment. Yeah. So um, the code of practice, uh, and I think you mentioned earlier, it, it sort of refers to the insurance requirements as being the same as the ordinary requirements for other cars, if I'm reading it correctly. And uh, you mentioned you don't have an extra surety bond or other uh, financial uh, requirements. Um, is there has there been any concern from the public uh, about that, or a feeling that uh, the ordinary amounts might not be sufficient? Um, I no, I don't think there has been concern from the public. I mean, we actually we consulted quite widely on insurance for automated vehicles um, last year, and um, so. Uh, we actually uh, started to take some uh, primary legislation through Parliament in what was called our Vehicle Technology and Aviation Bill. Um, now, we got that most of the way through Parliament and a general election was called. Um, <laughs> and uh, bills don't carry across between parliaments. Um, however, that has been slightly resurrected um, since the new government was formed. Um, we now have a new bill called the Automated and Electric Vehicles Bill. Um, which contains um, pretty much the, the, the same insurance measures uh, that we were working on previously. Um, uh, and, and, and because of that, actually, we've consulted quite widely on this. Um, so um, we feel this is an area where we've got quite a, uh, quite a robust proposal that we've had a lot of input from the industry. Great. The, um, with respect to the testing um, and the code of practice, there's been, you know, some debate here in the States about whether you should be testing uh, automated vehicles on public roads, whether, in essence, you're making the public into a guinea pig um, mm -hmm. by subjecting them to testing. I, I know in your code of practice, you sort of uh, suggest that organizations should ensure the vehicles have successfully completed testing on 
closed roads or test tracks yep. before they yep. go out onto the public. And yep. I imagine that, uh, you know, all responsible companies are, are certainly going to want to get a level of comfort before they're on the roads. But um, has there been any uh, debate about that in the UK? Um, yeah, I mean, there's been some discussion. I think we've been quite lucky in the UK that we've had a lot of engagement um, at the kind of uh, central or, or local government level with organisations who have wanted to conduct testing. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's partly because they recognise that if they engage with us early, there's a lot that we can do for them. So, for instance, uh, um, perhaps letting them know of any uh, planned roadworks or changes to the road layout or any, any events that might be taking place or anything along those lines that, that might interfere um, with planned testing activities. Right. Um, in terms of uh, kind of uh, the public as a guinea pig and, and the points you, you made at the start, um, uh, it, it, it is actually possible to test on the UK roads now as long as you can comply with UK road traffic law and, and, and there are a lot of points in there around things like not driving uh, without due care and attention and driver distraction and and there are lots of things in there that actually um uh their kind of characteristics require an organization to, to to meet certain standards right and has there uh, been any concern on the part of individual cities uh, in the UK about wanting to have uh, more of a say about how the testing may roll out in in their jurisdictions. I know here we've had this ongoing debate about should the federal government be doing it at a national level or should we have individual states or even cities be able to control when the testing happens or yep. have different rules? Has, has there been a discussion like that in the UK? Um. Yeah, there's, there's, there's been a lot of conversation between organisations who have either tested or are interested in testing and the specific cities that they're interested in testing in. And in fact, we're, we, we are really encouraging those uh, those conversations to happen at an early stage. Um, uh, obviously, there are different kind of use models for automated vehicles. And, and, I, and I think one of the things that cities are, are very interested in, and, and also these organisations themselves, are, are what are the kind of... Uh, uh, what are the sustainable uh, use models, if you like? What are the ones that are potentially going to, for instance, complement the the mass transit networks, complement public the existing public transportation? Um, and so we're we're really encouraging organisations to engage very early with with, with the cities um, to to have those conversations and to make sure that the tests are actually designed in the in in kind of the the, the best the, the way that benefits both organisations. Right. Um Let's talk a little bit about public transit. Um, mm -hmm. How are you guys thinking about the impact that automated vehicles will have on on use of public transit, especially with rideshare? I think there's a concern here that autonomous rideshare will be as convenient as your own personal car, but at the same price as a public transit bus. Mm -hmm. So people will choose um, to ride individually and create additional traffic or additional vehicle miles traveled and congestion. Uh, how, how are you starting to think about those issues as you think about the business models? Yeah, I think those, those concerns are, are shared over here. Um, and it's one of the reasons that we are encouraging uh, organizations to engage with, with, with cities and local authorities as, as early as possible. 
Um, I, I, I think we we maybe haven't seen the the, the, the same level of share mobility as, as as you have in some parts of the U.S. So, for instance, I know in, in San Francisco, Uber Pool I think is forms over fifty percent of, of Uber's journeys. Um, uh, so, so we've perhaps not yet seen that that kind of level of uptake in, in terms of sharing. Um, but I, th- I think we very much are, are thinking about how can we um, essentially integrate models of AVs into cities in a way that um, uh, in a way that kind of adds to the existing public transportation network. So it complements it. It drives pe- more people to to use public transportation. Um, rather than competing against it. So um, it's definitely something we're looking at. More of a first mile, last mile approach to encourage, uh, at least in the busy corridors, to keep transit going. Um, When you look at the UK more broadly, um, how do you feel about uh, potential uh, use of uh, automated vehicles in more rural or less densely populated areas. I know people look at the U.S. and say, well, this is really more likely going to happen in a rideshare or fleet business model and therefore more likely to roll out in an urban setting. And, you know, it'll be 20 years before more rural areas. So given your population, how how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I so I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for rural areas, um, they tend not to, not necessarily to be terribly well connected at the moment, um, and they suffer from uh, public transportation services which um, don't uh, don't tend to meet people's individual needs as as as, as well as they they do in larger cities where where there are more, there are more options. Um, so I, I think uh, this. There's definitely the possibility to replace, for instance, things like uh, rural bus services, which maybe run on a fixed route just mm-hmm. once an hour, for instance, to to offer perhaps a, a fleet of maybe slightly smaller vehicles, which can run in a, in a more demand responsive uh, way and perhaps using more flexible routing as well. Um, so, so, so I think in that sense, there are some significant opportunities um, for rural areas, also for things like community transport provision of uh, Things like school buses and um, healthcare-related travel and social care and those sorts of things. Um, So these are very um, high-cost services at the moment. They tend to be uh, very loss-making. So actually, I think automated vehicles have a a lot of potential to offer those same kinds of services, but in a way that suits uh, the individuals more. So it's more bespoke. It's more, um, more of an individual service that meets their specific needs. Um, but potentially also lower cost to operate. Right. One of the um, concerns that uh, city officials uh, here have expressed is that the ability to make automated vehicles really work well with public transit, first mile, last mile, and looking at overall transit solutions, is that the cities need access to certain data that is controlled by private companies. Um, I know the data rules are, are you know, even more complex um, in Europe. Uh, how, how do you envision that playing out in the UK? Uh, do you feel like you would need to require private companies to make their data uh, available in order to facilitate better shared transit? 
or are you thinking that would be on a voluntary basis or how do you make that work? Um, yeah, so I, so coming back to your question, are we thinking we all need to require it or do we anticipate we'll get it on a voluntary basis? I mean, I, I, I think our position would always be we would prefer not to require uh, require something in the first instance if, if there are ways that we can encourage um, uh, voluntary sharing. Um, now, data feels like one of those things where actually in order to get uh, to get what we need in a, in a kind of standardized and interoperable formats. Um, uh, there, there are potentially good arguments to, to, to have a requirement, um, and there are ways for us to, to do that. So, for instance, if you want to operate a passenger, uh, passenger service in the UK, you need to have uh, a, a passenger license, and there are different licensing regimes that exist. Um, so there are possibilities. That, that, that's a tool potentially in the future, um, to 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 use to require um, provision of, of certain data that uh, cities and, and towns um, might find useful. Right. Now, uh, turning to deployment, uh, sort of ultimate deployment, which uh, I don't think anyone's ready to do yet. But once we get beyond testing. Uh, is there any impediment to deploying a level four or five vehicle tomorrow in the UK? Uh, are there sort of uh, other rules and things that need to be changed, or uh, is it te you know theoretically possible? Um, well, there's, there are some aspects of the law um, which uh, an organisation who wanted to deploy would would need to um, secure an exemption from those parts of the law. Um, I probably can't talk about them in too much detail at the moment because we're still having internal discussions. Um, mm -hmm. But there are certainly possibilities to apply for an exemption now. Um, that, that's probably not going to be a trivial process in terms of the information that we would require to, to satisfy ourselves that we would be prepared to make an exemption. Um, obviously, uh, from the UK government point of view, safety is our, is our absolute top priority. Um, so uh, we would anticipate that a very robust, uh, very uh, rigorous and detailed safety case um, would form the, the, the core of that application for any sort of exemption. Um, and we would still retain the ability to put any uh, to, to to apply specific constraints and parameters to any exemption that we did grant. Um, and would the exemption be required if it was an ordinary um, vehicle in terms of having a steering wheel and other would otherwise comply with uh, the physical attributes of a normal vehicle? Um, setting aside the software or does it is an exemption required regardless because somebody wouldn't be driving it yes yeah, so it's it's the it's the second of those so an exemption would be required regardless um so our, our regulations govern uh, both the construction of the vehicle which would include things like the physical design aspects so things like whether it has a steering wheel or not um, but they also govern the use of the vehicle um, so so it would be required in either of those situations okay and uh you mentioned that in order to get that type of exemption, you would, um, you know, want to see certain information. So, um, are you thinking of it like a type approval or a, a pre, what we would call pre-market approval uh, for each manufacturer in order to be able to deploy uh automated vehicles or are you ultimately thinking down the road that it would move 
toward a different model. Uh, in the U.S., we have self-certification where companies uh, certify that the vehicle meets certain standards and there's no actual uh, testing or or pre-market approval that's required. Uh, and there's a debate about how that regime may or may not change yep. for autonomous vehicles. But um, wh- which regime does the UK have now? And, and are you thinking of going in a different direction? Yeah, um, we don't have a definite position on this yet. So we've been following uh, uh, some of the conversations um, that our counterparts have been having along these same lines with interest. So you, know, you talked about um, some of the conversations in the US. There have also been um, some proposals put forward uh, by, by the Australians as well. Um, they're all very similar, so I think maybe they have, they've used slightly different names, but essentially they're describing the same sorts of things. Um, I think what we hope is that uh, when, we, when we go through the first uh, few applications for uh, exemption, um, that we will have a, a, be, be able to form a view about what the, the best longer-term process might look like. Right. And, you know, some of the concern here is that even if you wanted to do a pre-market approval or a third-party testing regime, it's very difficult to understand at this juncture what that testing would look like, you know, in order to um, make it kind of apples to apples across uh, different yep. providers. Yep. Okay. And um, the UK uh, has also been doing some investment you you put out a a competition for some funding uh with matching private grants can you tell us uh what what you all are doing there um yep so uh so so another of our uh, objectives at ccab is 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 around ensuring that the uk um uh, research on collective autonomous vehicles in the UK is, is, is effective and it's, and it's targeted at delivering value for, for the UK and also that it, that it's coordinated as well. So, um, we have run a number of, uh, competitive, uh, grant funding competitions, um, for organizations, but for, for the industry to apply for, for funding, um, for feasibility and research and development projects in this area. Um, so we run CAV1, CAV2, and we've just launched a very imaginative, imaginatively named CAV3. <laughs> um, and these are really about, um, these are about um, growing the UK research and development base. So, so um, for these grants, the research and development have to be conducted in the UK. Um, so businesses have to have a UK subsidiary. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and through that subsidiary, the, the actual R&D has to be performed. So it, it can't just be effectively, if you like, a clearinghouse for cash going abroad. Um, the physical R&D has to be conducted in, in, in the UK. Um, but we have seen um, quite a lot of innovation come from the previous couple of CAV calls. Um, we, the, the current call is, is a very open call. So we're interested in, in looking not just at... Um, uh, deployments of level four or five automation, but also things like uh, the business models that might support um, uh, AVs in the future. And we've also, for the first time, opened uh, opened up this competition to off-road uses of cabs. Um, so potentially things like warehousing and agriculture and, and and different applications as well. Interesting. And what are some examples of projects that have been funded in the past? Um, so um, the projects that have been funded in the past are, are all still ongoing. So these tend to be kind of multi-year projects. Um, and the idea is that we 
I mean, generally they have different project phases where they get increasingly more ambitious. Um, we have funded a project called Gateway, which is operating in the Greenwich area of London, um, and that is operating uh, some uh, pod-style vehicles in, in shared space. So it's operating around the, the O2 arena, um, and it's kind of sharing its space with pedestrians and, and other road users, um, and we're getting some some good intelligence from that project about how AVs interact with other road users and, and, and pedestrians. Right. Um, we have also funded uh, a project called UK Auto Drive, um, which again is uh, pod-style vehicles operating in Milton Keynes and Coventry in the UK. Um, and uh, again, they are, are hoping to... Um, increase the level of automation throughout the trials um, so mm -hmm. uh, that's ongoing at the moment um, from our recent call CAV2 we funded a number of uh, projects designed to look at mobility as a service style business models um, so one called Streetwise uh, which will involve uh, a company called 5AI and Transport for London uh, and a, a number of other organisations as well to deliver effectively an autonomous uh, mobility as a service style solution within London uh, and uh, also another uh, project called Driven uh, which involves a, a young company an, an SME called Oxbotica uh, in the in the UK um, and they will be operating uh, uh, on between Oxford and um, and London um, great and when when you see these uh, the mobility as a service um, are there attributes of that that are different from what we might think about as uh, traditional rideshare like Uber or Lyft in the U.S., or are they along that model? Um, so I, I, I think we, uh, I, I think that there are some attributes which are different. So we, we certainly, um, our thinking about it in, in the U.K. Is, is that it will be very much a blend of what we currently consider as public transportation and what we would currently consider as, as private transportation. And so it would be very much a, a, a mixture of, of both of those. Um, uh, I, I, think we, we, I think we have much less uh, private car ownership in the UK generally than, than in the US. Um, so uh, I, I, again, uh, we, we maybe see... Um, particularly in cities, uh, potentially see this as a, as a, as a means of um, encouraging greater use of public transportation and also potentially um, encouraging more active transportation. So by that, I, I'm talking about things like cycling and walking. Um, so we've, we've, we've got a couple of, I suppose, high-level agendas um, around uh, air quality and also around um, health. Um, so encouraging people to, 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 to do more of that active transportation um, is particularly useful on, on both of those fronts. That's great. And what, just to finish up, what has the consumer sentiment been overall toward autonomous vehicles? I know in the code of practice, you were encouraging organizations to have a public relations and media communication strategy to educate the public about the benefits and kind of explain what's going on with the testing. Uh, there have been a number of studies here where people have concluded that, you know, Americans don't want uh, autonomous vehicles or they certainly don't want to pay for autonomous 
features and things like that. And I think there's some debate here as to, you know, whether anyone really knows what they want until they mm-hmm. see it and, and how, how much that really reflects consumer sentiment. So how are you guys thinking about that and thinking about kind of educating the public and making the case for, for autonomy? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I, I think the public mood is still evolving here, uh, and I think that's that's the case everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. I think that in, within the UK there have still been relatively few real-world uh, kind of trials and, and deployments. Um, so I think for a lot of people this maybe still feels quite far away. Um, mm-hmm. I think what we do see is that when we have kind of ordinary members of the public um, experience uh, an automated vehicle for the first time. Um, generally, they're 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 often quite surprised by the experience. They're often maybe more positive than they thought they would be. So I, I think we recognise that that one of the things that we could usefully do is actually try to um, just try to connect more people with this technology um, to make it seem more real and and perhaps to remove some of the kind of uh, the mystery or some of the hype or some of the sensationalism surrounding it mm-hmm. um, but I, 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 I think I think this is something that is is is, is going to change over time um, obviously it's going to be shaped by um, the, the kind of the position that the industry takes and this is one of the reasons why we're, we are very keen to ensure that these vehicles are, are safe and secure by design um, because that's going to be extremely important it's going to be um, one of the one of the main factors to to gain public acceptance is going to be demonstrating um, that, that that these vehicles are, are are safe to use. Absolutely. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Thanks so much for uh, talking with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Lucy for joining us. We'll put some links to the UK materials she referenced in our show notes. And you can find the show notes for this episode and all episodes on our publication at medium.com called Smarter Cars. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.